You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by RICO, your local guide for all things real estate investing in Colorado. Happy New Year, everyone. Chris Lopez here, and you're on the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast. But today, we're talking about real estate investing and stocks and bonds. Many of you know I own stocks, I own bonds, and I have carved out that niche in the real estate financial planning space with Propulam and all the advisory work. So on and off over the years, I've always been you know networking and talking with various financial planners to get their insight, their opinion, because there's often this very interesting divide where people in real estate and agents often uh, have a sour look on stocks and bonds, to put it politely, and people and stocks and bonds, financial industries often have like a sour look on real estate, which I don't think is accurate, but a lot of people have that uh, perception out there. I don't. I own all those assets classes and I love them. Well, a few months ago, I came into good fortune to connect with a local financial planning firm, Denver Wealth Management. Their office is actually down the DTC and they share very similar investing views as I do. Uh, in terms of like that long-term wealth building strategy, the way we talk about real estate, they have that same passion and long-term outlook on the stocks and bonds side. And what makes it so exciting is that they're into real estate. A lot of the advisors over there own real estate themselves as rentals. So we've been getting to each other, uh, talking, had a great time. And so I'm very happy to introduce two gentlemen here from Denver Wealth Management. The first is Zach Bauk. That Hello. gets your last name right? You got it. You All right. It. One or two. So you're an advisor. You own real estate. You're also one of the, the partners at the firm, right? Or founders? Correct. Co-founded Denver Wealth Management in 2011. Awesome. So we're going to pick Zach's brain a lot. We also have Austin Garcia, who's an advisor over there as well. Austin, how are you? Doing well, Chris. Thanks for having us. So I want to give a little background on here and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you guys are, I said, you're in that long-term wealth advisor space, uh, but both you own real estate. Uh, Austin, you have a condo that you're going to turn to rental in Littleton. Zach, you have a primary and some raw land, a long-term rental and a short-term rental, right? That's right. My, my personal financial plan involves uh, maxing out my 401k and trying to buy one property per year. So you can see I'm three years down the road on that path. All right. Podcast over. That's Easy. the plan, right? That's it. One Easy. a year. So I want to really kind of go back and and kind of get how you guys got into financial planning, but how real estate came into there, because I kind of went the opposite route. I, my degrees in financial planning, I did not go that route, ended up getting bit by the real estate bug and incorporating financial planning. Um, so Zach, tell us a story about how you got into financial planning and then how you started as an investor yourself, how real estate came in your, into like your purview as an investor and eventually into your firm. Yeah, how I got into financial planning is is kind of interesting. I, I've always been a very business owner. My, I've always wanted to own a business. Like I don't know what I wanted to do in life other than I wanted to own a business. So after I graduated from CU Denver, I started a screen printing business. So I printed t-shirts and bags and Whole Foods was actually one of my bigger clients. We, we handmade these Whole Foods uh, reusable shopping bags. And, uh, you know, I thought I was doing all right. I was doing all right. I was self-employed at the age of, I don't know, 23, 24. And then one day I was sitting at a stoplight. I actually remember right where the stoplight, right on Colorado and Alameda. And uh, I was, I, I listened to a lot of talk radio because um, I was in my garage all day printing shirts. So I just had eight hours a day to, to kill. So you can only listen to the same music eight hours for so long. So I listened to a lot of political talk radio. And man, I, 
I just got sick of it. It was like, it was like the Bush versus Kerry election. And I was just like, I, I just started flipping around the channels. And all of a sudden I heard this guy come on the radio, uh, Dave Ramsey. And he, I heard him say, uh, like he was talking to a caller and he was like, you're an idiot. You got a credit card. You've got a car loan. You've got a student loan. You've got a mortgage. You've got a second mortgage. You, you've, you've got everything. And, and I was at that light and I, w- I was that same guy. I had one of every single debt he listed off and was insulting this guy on the radio for. And, uh, and that's, that's how I started. I said, well, I should probably hire a financial planner. So I went to a local firm called Waddell and Reed. They're out of business now. Um, but in that meeting, I was kind of trying to show the guy, the financial advisor, how much he knew about financial planning. And he said, you know, you're really interested in this stuff. You know about investments. You're passionate about it. Maybe you should just be a financial planner. And I don't think really, yeah, wow. And I don't think at that point in my life anyone had ever told me I should be anything. Like I don't, no one cared what I did. I could, you know, it was it was totally relevant. No, no one had any vested interest in what I did in anything. So the fact that somebody was like, "Hey, you would be good at this," like it was just like a cold shower on a hot day. I was like, "That's the most refreshing thing I ever heard." And sure enough, I went to the next meeting where he, you know, we talked about getting licensed and. You know, a year later, I was uh, sold my screen printing business and was a financial advisor. So, did you end up working at his firm? Was he? Yeah, did he recruit you essentially yes. as well. That's right. Yeah, okay. I worked at the, the Cherry Creek office of Waddell and Reed. Starting in, uh, I didn't actually start till started uh, August thirty first, two thousand and eight. So, fifteen days before the Great Financial oh, Crisis. That's a perfect started. time. It really was like because every all the other financial advisors were quitting or d- had disappointed their clients. I hadn't disappointed anybody because I didn't have any clients. Yeah. So it was like it was, it was a perfect time to start like. Uh, um, it, uh, being a financial advisor. So okay. That's how I got into the industry. So can I assume was a pretty typical, like you got in, you know, got into life insurance, got into mutual funds, mm-hmm. like kind of the typical way you got into there. Exactly. So how that evolved into where now, because I, I very much like, based on what we've gotten to talk about the, the long-term approach you have in incorporating real estate, talk about that evolution. Well, yeah, everyone, everyone interacts with real estate because you got to live somewhere, right? So I was just like out of college and you got to live somewhere. And someone had once told me that um, your first house should be a duplex and because you can live in one half and rent the other. So I was obsessed with this idea of buying a duplex. Um, and we actually, this is the unbelievable, but um, I bought the closest duplex to Pepsi, Pepsi Center in, in the Highlands. I bought a whole duplex for $150,000 in 2007 or eight. I can't remember the whole thing. And uh, we put like $50,000 into it. So we owned the whole duplex for 200000 and I lived in one half and rented the other. Um, and then the it was a stone, a literal stone foundation, like from 1911. And I don't, I, I don't mean to get too far off topic. I think it's fascinating, but the whole house started crumbling away. You're on a me. real estate podcast, man. Okay. Go with it. So you've all, you've all, they always tell you not to buy a house with a bad foundation. I, I just ignored that advice about a house with a bad foundation. Literal wall, like you could look up in my living room and see the sky. So after like thirty thousand dollars of. Um, of repairs to the foundation, which I didn't have because I still had student loans and credit cards and car loans. Um, I went and knocked on my neighbor's door, which the neighbor there is citizen. Oh, I shouldn't tell you who it is. It's a, it's a movie company in the Highlands. And I said, Hey, I'm, I want to sell this because the foundation is broken. Do you know anyone who wants to buy it? And he said, I'll buy it. And he offered a check. And I went and talked to my real estate agent to drop the contracts. And he offered me a tidy sum. It was three seventy five. I don't mind sharing. And, uh, I made like $125,000 in two years in a day. Cause I waited until I had been there for two years. Yeah. And I was like, Oh my God, real estate's awesome. <laughs> you know, paid off my student loans with that check. Um, now that property's worth so much more than a million dollars that I, I, I don't like to think about it too much, but I, I, at the time I didn't have the money to um, fix it. 
but yeah. And then I was like, oh my God, real estate's amazing. You know, I made, I made more than I'd ever made as a financial advisor at that point, just by owning a house and living there for two years. So. You mean in terms of like investment returns? Just in gross money. Just in it, gross. Yeah. yeah just because like, you were actually, still pretty early on in your career. Yeah. I was, I made like $7,000 my first year as a financial advisor. So I was yeah. broke as a joke. Well, that's, so. that's how it starts though. Yeah. So, okay, so you're going through here, like, how did that, like, you get that, you're like, okay, you're, you're investing yourself, you're advising clients, how did that progress into, like, the next step? Yeah, well, Waddell and Reed, which I wouldn't say this if they were still in business, but they went out of business, like, two years ago, which isn't surprising, because it, it irritated the hell out of me, and who's now my business partner, Blair, they forced us to sell proprietary products, so, like, we could, if you came to me, and Chris, you wanted to, like, retire, I'd, I'd have to sell you a Waddell and Reed mutual fund, or I have to sell you a Waddell and Reed annuity, and we just knew there were better products out there and it irritated the hell out of us. So fin yep. finally, we were like, well, we just have to leave. So that's why I said 2011. I don't know. I had a brain fart. We started our company in 2012, not 2011. In 2012, we went independent, meaning we didn't have any proprietary products. We answered to the SEC and we answered to FINRA, but we don't have like a, a corporate boss telling us what to do. Um, and I would say it was just an evolution when you go interact with actual wealthy people. I would say this is like a Dave Ramsey thing. Um, when you go see how actual wealthy people made their wealth, I mean, we just became students of the game. I'm, I'm, I, if you guys want to hear my whole story, you can check out our podcast where I tell you the longest version of our story. But, um, in, I'm from North Dakota. I'm one of seven kids. Dad was a truck driver. Mom stayed home. So we were incredibly not well off on, on food stamps and the whole thing. I've been doing a paper. I did a paper out from fourth grade until I got a job at McDonald's when I was like 17. So I've been working a long time. And, um, so if I meet a guy like you, Chris, and like Chris has a nice car and I'm your financial advisor, so I get to actually see Chris's net worth and, oh, you know, he's got all these rental properties and he's got all this money in the bank. Yeah, sure. I'm your financial advisor, but more than that, I'm a sponge and I'm just going to sit mm. here and absorb everything because I want to be rich. I don't want to be broke. I want yeah. I want my kids to have nice things. I want to have nice things. I want to visit, you know, Italy and Europe and Asia. And so I just became a sponge. And that's actually how we started the Mind of a Millionaire podcast is we, we just started sharing the stories of wealthy people. But one of the, I would say one of the most amazing things I saw was a lot of these people in their 60s had paid off real estate. And I, I know we're going to talk about the return on equity and everything. But from, from my perspective, when I see you, know, you and you're 65 and you're wealthy and you're retired, these guys always seem to have one or two paid for rental properties that just send them cash every month. And it's a big part of their retirement plan. I thought, shoot, I want that too. Yeah. I mean, a couple paid off rentals for fixed income is huge. Yeah. Like one or two paid off properties is oftentimes a difference maker for people. Yeah. So it was, it was just as simple as, uh, you know, not following the math, but just following like, well, this guy has an awesome life and he's got a nice car and he's got a little money and he's got to, you know, goes on vacations. Like, what's he doing? Okay. That's what he's doing. He's just two paid off rental properties. This I'm going to do that, you know, like, and then from there as you know, now we're, we're a pretty substantial firm. We have seven over, I guess we're at 800 households that we work with. So we get a good, a good wide array of people that we can, I mean, learn from. Yeah. And a lot of those people have real estate and that's how we learned. And this is what I, I thought was very fascinating because as we kind of talked about our respective, like, you know, clients and our, our, our avatar demographics for type of clients we work with, we had a lot of crossover. Hmm. In fact, I mean, both you guys in the last month or two, you're meeting with prospective clients or current clients. And there is that, you know, one to two or degrees of separation between what they're doing and crossover some stuff done in real estate. So you have 800 households. Yep. What's the kind of your, your typical client avatar? Well, if you just do the math, our, our average household has $600,000 in assets with us. I mean, that's like the, the math of it. And, and 
whatever, you guys aren't going to come check our business. It's within that, you know, the market goes up 10% or 5%. No, we're not, we're not auditing you there. We, yeah, we, I would we, say, yeah, yeah. I like to give accurate information because I, anyway, just, it's like my own peculiarity, but I would say our average client is in the five to 10 years before retirement or the five to 10 years after retirement. So like probably 55 to 75 is our average client. Uh, average household net worth is probably in the two to $3 million range. Um, average account size, you know, 600,000 to a million. And th- that, that would be our average. So that's like the most of the people we're talking to are in that demographic. Yep. But then we have this whole other side of the demographic, which is what we, um, what do we call our emerging wealth group? Emerging, emerging wealth. wealth group. We also, have, <laughs> 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 we were trying to come up with some cute name for it, I think. And then I think we just settled back on the basics. So it's just emerging wealth. And then we have a lot of folks in their thirties and forties who are, you know, maybe they just bought their house or they're planning on buying their first house. And now it's about having kids and saving for retirement and going on some sweet trips and yep. having a car you're proud of. And like, and, and we have a big chunk of those clients, but um, yeah, m- mostly it's that 55 to 75, I would say. So what, what's the rough percent of your clients that own real estate, like rentals, you know, uh, that own property. that's not their primary. I would say it's less than 50%, maybe okay. 25 to 50%. And okay. I, you know, I only work personally with like a hundred of the 800 yeah. households. So, but I would say in my, in my group, it's probably, we'll just say around a 33%. Okay. But I will say the reason those guys are always doing better. Like they're always, their, their retirement is always better because they have, you know, three income sources. They have their, their bonds and stocks paying dividends and interest. They've got their social security and they have their rental income. And those, that three pronged approach of income seems to do really well for those folks. So random question here. Yeah. Does anyone have like defined benefit plans anymore? Retirement plans, pension plans? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, They're not I, that common. I, yeah. But... I would say that. So if you had those clients, then it's gotta be a very small percent, right? Yeah. It's a lot of times it's like, uh, like you're a cert, you're an anesthesiologist or whatever, and you make 800 grand a year, but by using a defined benefit plan, it, it, well, it's, like, but they're using their own one. Yes, right? they're creating one for just themselves. Yeah, but that's so that's yeah. I'm talking about just like Northrop Grumman or oh, Pepsi, yeah. the big companies with like, hey, yeah, hey, we'll take care of you. Like that's Lock, yeah, Lock, all the Lockheed Martin still has them, Raytheon yeah. still has them, all the big aerospace companies have them. But you know, if you're if you're 80 years old right now, I mean, you're born in 1942, you probably worked most of your career where there's a pension. So we have like US West, which is like the old cell phone tower. We have we have a lot of people with pensions, but. It's usually people now who are in their 80s and the pension is like 742 bucks yeah. a month, you know, <laughs> didn't keep up with inflation. So, uh, but yeah, there's there's quite a few pensions. Perfect. Austin, I want to turn to you for a minute, man. All right. Because I know you and I originally connected, I mean, sometime last year and we just started chit-chatting. And again, same, same theme, like you're you're into to wealth creation, you're on the, the stocks and bonds side, but you own real estate yourself and kind of have a similar plan of using real estate to incorporate it. Kind of share your story and your journey on how you got into planning and real estate got into there. Yeah. I mean, my journey was a little bit forced as far as where I'm at now. And that life just kind of had its, its plan for me. I went to CSU Pueblo for three years. I studied marketing. I always had the intention of going into business, going into marketing after college. Studied that for three years and just arbitrarily how credits transfer. I transferred for my senior year up to CSU Port Collins. And that process pushed me, oddly enough, out of the business school. I didn't qualify because I had not taken a calculus class. I had tested out of it. Again, arbitrary rules. But it pushed me into economics. They said, you can take all economics classes for your senior year and graduate in four years, which was important. I wanted to be out of 
college and yep. move into the world, earn some <laughs> money. Uh, I was like, great. Economics looks better on paper. And it actually ended up being what got my foot in the door. It was an introduction um, to Denver Wealth Management. I had a background in economics, but I also had a background in marketing. They were hiring for a summer analyst intern. My parents worked there. My mom being a proud mother, she's like, you know, or proud mother or just wanting her child to have a job. So he will move out of the house, whatever you want to pose it as. <laughs> Made the introduction. Um, said, you have to meet my son. I, I think it was pretty obvious quickly that I wasn't financially minded. But they said, we've never done anything with marketing. We'll give you an opportunity in marketing. It, for me, it was a resume boost. For Denver Wealth, it was an opportunity for us to try new marketing yeah. techniques. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. I showed up on my first day with a podcast microphone and the expectation was figure out how to make a podcast. I did that for about two and a half years. And in that time span, again, having no background in finance and, and truly no desire to go into finance, I really learned what it meant to be a financial planner. So there's the investment side of it, but there's also the financial planning side of it. And in the financial planning side of it, getting to know all of our clients, it's extremely apparent that you're following these folks through these huge transitional periods in their life, sending their kids to college, retirement, job transitions, marriage. You're truly a partner and your job is to determine what their objectives are and create this. And it truly is a creative process of problem solving to create that roadmap for people to get there. And I was drawn to that. So two and a half years into my time at Denver Wealth, um, Zach and Blair, the, the principals, approached me and gave me the opportunity saying, you know, if, if you want to go into financial planning, we think it'd be a great fit. And I knew that I had marketing to fall back on if I didn't like it, but I was up for the challenge. Took all my certifications, passed all my certifications in 2021, um, and the rest was history. And I just fell in love with the financial planning component. To Zach's point, it's that constant curiosity mm -hmm. where you're meeting with these folks who are successful and you get to delve into, well, what made you successful? And you learn across so many different avenues. You're forced to. You're forced to understand how different types of businesses function and the intricacies in every day's learning experience. So that was fun. And then moving over to the real estate side of things, I'm a Colorado native. I grew up here. And when you watch Colorado real estate from the time that I was a child and my parents boast about what they purchased their homes at in Colorado and what they're worth now, there's always this expectation that the best thing that you can do in Colorado is invest in the market, invest yep. in real estate. And the best thing about real estate too as an investment is you have a roof over your head. So after I got done with college, I was fortunate. I moved back home for a couple of years, saved up some money and then purchased my condo in October, 2020, which has been awesome. <clears throat> it's been a lot of fun to participate. Um, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later, but my goal is to move into something a little bit bigger in 2024 and then rent out that condo because I mean, we're financial advisors, we're numbers people, and it makes sense to hold that real estate asset in a broad portfolio instead of getting rid of it. Absolutely. And what's your interest rate on that? Like, like two, eight, yeah, two, eight, seven, five. I don't know if I'll ever get that again. I don't think so. It, Maybe not. it would hurt my heart to get rid of that interest rate. Oh, so that right there, I hear that. That is like such a common, I'll say objection I get right now is people like, oh, I don't want to sell this property because I have a locked in, you know, 2.8 or 2.5 mm -hmm. interest rate. Cool. I get that. But you get fixed in that one variable and actually can be like a, a, a false flag indicator. And like, yeah, you got to lock, uh, you know, you got to lock low, but overall you're still like missing a lot of like wealth and cash flow by repositioning. So, you know, we can talk more about that, but 
So I, uh, I, I want to talk really a, a couple main things here. I'm going to go off script because, you know, uh, last week we recorded a, a podcast on your podcast, the Mind of the Millionaire podcast, and it was your January markets uh, investment forecast, insights, yeah. investment insights. And we talked real estate, stocks, bonds, and had some very interesting conversations on there. So it got me thinking because something you talked about, Zach, was in like the biotech field yeah. and how you had this uh, structure for like, hey, you know, biotechs trade at this. We can, you know, we want to do some diversification here. Here's why. It made a lot of sense. Listen to podcasts, more details when I'm butchering it. But I want to put you guys on the spot here and hopefully your compliance uh, doesn't kill me for this. But I'm going to run a scenario through here. I come to you as a 40-year-old guy. I have a wife. She's a veterinarian, W-2. No, not financially minded. I, that's definitely my department. Uh, we have two young kids. So I think I'm very much in kind of like your your demographic yep. yeah. in that range of net worth. I'm in accumulation mode. I own stocks. I own bonds. I own real estate. Real estate is definitely the majority of my you know focus. And I can get a better return there because that's the space I'm in. But I'm of the mindset. I'm curious how you guys would, would kind of handle this objection, also advise someone from a high level. Because I... My general mindset is, hey, I put a lot of my active attention and money into real estate because I can do active stuff there. And when I have over the years done like mutual fund investing, I've done basically per, poor performance, you know, net fees compared to the market. And years ago, I said, hey, I'm going to switch to index fund investing. And I've always kind of done a set and forget it index fund investing, you know, in, in 401ks, IRAs, you know, typical, nothing sexy, but just it, they're Vanguard. Uh, broad market index funds, not sexy, but all the it's typical like a cult. That's like a cult. Do you have a, ta- a like a, a a tattoo, a VOO tattoo? Uh, <laughs> no, just, just the bobbleheads is all I have. Oh, okay. of, uh, <laughs> yeah, of uh, of Bogle. No, so but I, I kind of go towards just like I'm I'm a keep it simple, stupid person. Um, and so obviously I am probably you know uh, more active financially than a lot of people are. But I'm kind of curious. Someone of that profile um, comes to you. And I have a bunch of stocks and bonds. And I said, you know, I, I kind of follow the Warren Buffett rule. About 90%-ish is in index funds. About 10%-ish is in bonds and cash in that portfolio. Give or take, you know, 5 or 10% right now in the market. But I kind of just follow that rule of thumb for like high risk, high reward, high accumulation. So I come to you with that kind of high-level scenario. I'm kind of curious, like your breakdown process and how you take that stocks and equity side and start like, parsing out for some of that. Hey, I, I'm high risk, but I also, uh, from my own experience, I'm a big believer in kind of like high level, sudden forget it funds and investments. How's that parlay over to like creating more wealth in stocks? Because I want returns. I love it. So, so they're doing paper, rock, scissors over here. See, I know, it's, I know, it's, it's a new dynamic yeah, for us. Yeah. We're usually the only two I know. having a conversation. Now it's, and I always feel bad because I, when we started the podcast with me in Austin, he was an intern out of college and didn't know anything about financial planning. So it was me just talking and then Austin doing nothing. And now it's, we're at the point where he is at least 50% of the podcast. Yeah. And I'm trying to make sure I don't talk over him. But I'll answer your question first. And then Austin, yeah, you can I'll, get, I'll give my perspective too, because it's different. We all have different processes. Um, I would say the first thing I'm, I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a step back and the purpose of finance, what's the purpose of financial planning? Um, for me, the purpose of financial planning is to have your money serve you so that you can live the life that you want. And the, what Denver wealth management has boiled that down to is what we call people, place, and purpose. Yep. We have found that if you have in as much money as you could ever possibly want, or if you are completely broke, 
the main thing that affects your happiness is neither of those factors. It's do you have the people in your life, live in a place that offers what you need, and find the purpose in your life. And for some people, purpose is like religion or spiritual, and some people it's family, and you stay home with your kids. For me, it's definitely like career and business. For some people, purpose is fly fishing and, and skiing as much as possible. Like one of my very close friends works at a noodle factory. <laughs> I mean, now, now I know I'm going to make him listen to this podcast, but um, he, he because he wants to ride his bike and um, get tattoos and play video games. And he's perfectly happy because he has that people, place, and purpose, you know? Um, so that's the first thing I would ask, you know, a hypothetical 40-year-old Chris and his, and his wife is, you know, what is, what are you actually driving for? Because if, if we can get all of those things without some big number attached, like, let's talk about that first. And then we can talk about how we get there with the numbers. All right. So, so from, from a high level to like, I'd say quantify it. Like I, I love about a quarter million dollars a year in, in passive residual income okay. from investment income, not business income, not work income, but from passive income, take some taxes away, very comfortable lifestyle. I can pretty much do whatever I want to on that income. No problem. There's more, I'll still take it. If there's less, I can survive. But that kind of like the target. Um, I'm like you, Zach. Like I like the game of career business building. Like I don't really play sports anymore. Like it's like it's like career goals, investing goals, and family. Like that's that's the game I play and play for the rest of my life. I enjoy it. So I enjoy that game. But I, I want that income. So I'm like, you know what? F you, F this. We can be retired from like just that, you know, the lifestyle and little ego standpoint, but also from like, Hey, if something happens to me, I always go, Hey, if I drive home day, going down 25, getting four, seven, and hit by a bus. I want my wife, my kids to be able to like, you know, at least have a comfortable lifestyle and not have to move out of the house and all that stuff. Yeah. So that's the high level of it. Okay. Well, yeah. And then, um, so, so, uh, as far as passive income and as far as like the original question, which is real estate stocks, bonds, cash. And, and I understand what you're saying. Hey, I, I want a substantial passive income. So, if you were in a meeting with us, we would really dive into what you oh, said. Yeah. Like, what are you going to do with your two hundred fifty thousand a year? You, you shop at Whole Foods, which might take up most of that two fifty, or do you want to go on nice trips? Or I'm, I'm just joking about the grocery inflation. I can't stop myself. The whole check, <laughs> the whole paycheck. Um, blueberries cost twenty bucks. But what will you typically tell people is if you're willing to put in the time and energy and work on your real estate, twenty percent is probably a good return you should be shooting for. If you can't make twenty percent on your real estate, putting in the time and energy that's where you start looking at the either stock market, which historically has averaged 10 to 12%, or completely paid off brainless income investing real estate, which can also get you 10 to 12%. You know, Den- Denver's a little bit of a wacky market because we've had higher appreciation, but if you figure like three to 4% appreciation, seven to 8% cash flow, once again, that's not a Denver number, but- um, But you're talking about another market like a triple net or something yeah. that's more just income focused, right? Have, you know, we have clients in Atlanta or Georgia and yep. you, know, you can get crazy cash flow there, but you just don't have the historical appreciation. So for a person like you, I'd start with your goals. What are you going for? Okay, we're going for substantial passive income. How hard are you willing to work? I'm Chris, I'm driven, I'm gonna work my butt off. Okay, real estate, putting in the time and energy and building the relationships and sourcing the deals and finding the financing. You can make way more than you can make in the stock market, historically, um, especially if you use leverage, especially if you're, you're, you're running your real estate like a business. I, I would argue it ceases to become passive income at that point because it's very active if you're involved in the um, yep. inspections and the the brain power of finding the tenant or whatever it might be. But a person like you who that could be their career, I would say, awesome, man, go for it. You will make certainly make more in real estate than we will make in the stock market for you. Um, where the stock market comes in is like, you're the same person, Chris, but 
And I'll never commit 100% of my assets to like one asset class. Yeah. I love real estate, but I also love stocks. Mm-hmm. But if you're a lawyer, so or a, doc- a doctor is a good example. Like if you're a doctor and you're in the, the you're a surgeon and you're in, in surgery 60 hours a week, you can't really be an active real estate investor. Correct. I mean, it's, it is impossible unless you have nothing else going on. So that person, you can either be a passive real estate investor, which some people are just like born with that real estate gene. You know, they just love real estate and they want real estate. And, and you're probably one of those guys. They just love it. I love it too. That's why that's my financial plan. Um, but for a lot of folks like that, they'd rather we'd just buy stocks and we buy a lot of indexes. There are some categories where we can find things that do better than indexes historically. But I would say as a group, we're like 75, 80% index funds. We don't use Vanguard in particular. We tend to use like iShares or Black, like the BlackRock. More like ETFs. Yeah, yeah, more like ETFs. But And so, and, and you're not just doing like S&P 500, you're doing indexes of like niches or trends yeah. or industries, more like yeah. taking out the scalpel, but doing broad-based indexes and more specific asset classes and sectors? Yeah, so like okay. the S&P 500, for example, which is what most Vanguard investors buy, it, it's the 500 stocks that most make up the yep. US economy. Uh, it's a good thing to buy and hold because even though it's a buy and hold investment, it actually gets rebalanced every quarter, which a lot of people don't realize. There is a committee that chooses what goes in and out of the S&P 500. And because of that, it's actually kind of like a constantly evolving investment. It's not, it's passive for me. Well, that's why I like it. Set and yeah. forget it. Yeah, you can set it and forget it. Okay. So we, we, I don't know that we have a single client who doesn't have an S&P 500 index fund, but then we do also look for additional opportunities as they present themselves. Like we talked about biotech. We talked about healthcare a little bit. Um, Energy, which is a little controversy because a lot of people are opposed to energy investments, but energy still, even though it's been the best performing asset the past two years, is still like you can buy. Um, I won't say the company. I was almost going to say the company. Don't say the company. Some some uh, some oil and gas companies trade at five times earnings, which is like a fifth of what a large tech company trades for. Oh, right? they're trading outrageous right now. Yeah, or and, were. Yeah, so like if a uh, big tech company trades for twenty five times next year's profits. We can buy an oil company that literally trades for five times next year's profits. So, th- so, so we will take advantage of opportunities like that. Let me ask you this. And if you can't answer it, I understand. But look, hey, you know me. I come with an SP 500 index fund. Yeah. I'm an aggressive mindset. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to touch this money, hopefully, for you know 20 years. What's the broad like, hey, we would throw this percent in the biotech, this percent in the healthcare, or is that getting too much into like financial advising for a podcast? For do, you want, do you want to take that? I- yeah, I can jump in. Okay. So if you came with just uh, an S&P 500... Yeah, let's yeah, say I came uh, with a million dollars in S&P 500. And, and to Zach's point, that's great. I think that's more than most people do. It's a good spot to be. From there, though, we're dissecting the purpose of the investment. So what do we want that money to accomplish? And if you said, Austin, Zach, I want to be aggressive. I want more than the S&P's returns. We're going to diversify you. And a lot of it depends on where we're at from an economic and market standpoint. So you're going to see a lot more growth in tech-oriented investments in your portfolio. Yeah, I'm coming you're to you in see... January 2023. What'd you guys... <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm so curious. Like, you have no... I'm so fascinated by this. Like, I don't get to talk like... I, I, I started to cut you off. Like, I'm so fascinated by this. The thing that I like, though, is, you know, it's easy to look at tech and say, yes, I want to invest in tech. I want to invest in the big companies. But what you also have to look at is in owning that, it takes time. So for where we're at with tech right now, big tech, their expenses are so high with everything that they did in 2020 and 2021. They all started hiring like crazy. They went into full growth mode. And for investors in 2020 and 2021, that was awesome. It was great to see that growth. But now you're seeing the reverse of it and that they're so um, I guess overcommitted and they don't have enough income. So they're increasing the price of all these subscriptions. They're laying off all these employers to where yeah. owning tech as an aggressive investor 
these companies are great to hold, but in 2023, this is January, so I'm still acclimating to the year, you might not see that return back and you might not see it in 2024. And so you have to go into it with a mindset that you're willing to take that volatility to capture that long-term oh, growth. I'm willing to take that. So I got two questions. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious about like the, the broad-based stuff and also actually maybe more tactically first. So, you know, for years, the risk-free rate of return was practically 0%. Now it's what, four, let's say 5% for round number. So I know that puts a lot of like different pressure on tech. So I'm looking at, hey, there's a risk-free rate has gone up looking at T-bills and all that stuff. How does that impact like the tech space now from your perspective or just general like aggressive investing? Tech hasn't been able to grow. I mean, as rates go up, yeah, borrowing is substantially harder for these uh, mega tech firms. And that's why you're seeing these discrepancies in the balance sheets. And as those interest rates continue to climb, that continues to be a headwind for tech overall on a, in a, on a high level. That's going to be a headwind until we see those rates go back down, which in the long term is the Fed's objective. They want to push rates down. They want to create business. They want that free enterprise to work. But until that happens, tech is still going to be faced with this headwind. So it's back to square one where, yes, there's growth potential, but it's going to be long term. And I mean, going back to your original question, big tech's great, but we're also looking at areas like small tech. And I know we got excited about healthcare and biotech. Mm -hmm. And so diversifying you across these different sectors, we're long-term investors. We're buying companies that we think are going to produce in the long term based on your risk objectives. So from a high level, I have a million dollars in SP 500. What percent of that are you taking on SP 500 and putting to more like of these diff different investment baskets? 50%, oh. all of it? Okay, so, I mean, I'll give you a number. And you're doing your stuff. I'm doing my price to earnings ratios from memory so I can make sure I reference it properly. So if you think of like the S&P 500, it is like the 500 companies, it's like almost like the 500 largest companies in America. Yep. So not exactly, but kind of. Um, Right now, even with the market, the S&P was down 20% last year. The NASDAQ was down 33% last year. The crazy thing is that the price to earnings ratio of those large cap company stocks are still about 15% above their historic average. And the reason for that is because the risk-free rate was zero and now it's four. So the, the markets have completely stirred the pot up last year and got rid of... Um, basically said, hey, if when we, we had nowhere to invest money. So like if you were a retiree five years ago, bonds effectively paid zero to 3%. No one bought bonds. We all went and bought stocks because yep. the dividends paid three to five. But now that bonds pay four and a half to 10%, well, we don't have to buy stocks anymore. So because of that, you're just seeing this outflow from stocks. So when you own the S&P 500, you are only owning the large companies in America, which are still historically overvalued. So in your exact situation, hypothetical, or theoretical situation, that person, I would put, I think 15 to 20% in American small companies. Right now, American small growth companies are trading at 73% of their historical valuation. So you're actually getting a 27% discount in small cap growth companies as of today um, versus the historical valuation. So and you yes, said American small cap? American small cap okay. growth. Was, that's my stat is we're at 73% yep. of historical averages. And if you think, if you're into investing, if you listen to podcasts, you've probably come across the name Kathy Wood, who runs this ARK Investment Fund. Her fund made, I think, 140% during COVID, it, uh, positive 140% because she was buying all what she called exponential technologies. That fund lost 68% last year. The market wants nothing to do with growth companies, which is amazing because after 12 years, where all we heard about was like growth, 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 unicorns, venture capital, venture capital funds, billion dollar funds. 
That's all we heard about for 13 years. And now it's like the whole world was like, we don't care anymore. And this, you know, Warren Buffett quote that I love is be fearful or be greedy when others are fearful. People are completely fearful in the small cap space. And, mm. and it's almost like, um, to use the real estate analogy, the depths of the 2008 financial crisis. Like if you were sitting around with cash on hand in the 2008 financial crisis and you could buy some real estate, yeah, sure. Maybe it went down a little more in 2009, but 10 years later, look how you made out. You I won. Say, you won. You won big time. So I'd say 15% in US small cap, uh, 15% in US mid cap. Mid cap is, you know, like a small cap company is usually one that's valued at two to 10 billion. Um, and then a mid cap company, every like Morningstar and Russell all have their different metrics, but like t- say 10 to 30 billion would be a mid-sized company. Um, and then large cap is over 30. And so, so basically the S&P 500 has a great long-term return. Every single one of our clients own it. Um, we own the ETF though, not the Vanguard index fund, but it's not the best opportunity right now. I mean, there's two better opportunities. One would be small cap growth and the other would be selective large cap tech, like Austin was talking about, because you know, some river comp- South American river companies are down like 60% last year, you know, and I can't say the name of the, the river, but there's a lot of opportunities out there that, you know, don't come around all that often. So. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then, oh, so I guess to be, to like, uh, the religion of, of asset allocation says typically you have like 25 to 35% international. We're very light on international right now because of what China did like a year and a half ago. So we, which, which what they, what they did, if you don't pay attention to Chinese politics is they basically went into all these Western companies, domiciled in China and shut them down, um, yeah. publicly traded companies too. So we're not, we, we, a lot of financial advisors are invested with diversifying internationally and abroad. We are not obsessed with that. You know, we'll look for opportunities. the Peter Schiff camp? No, I don't know the Peter Schiff camp. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know who he is, but I don't, I don't know what, we got to, we got to have a dinner with, um, the head of JP Morgan's, uh, David Kelly, he's the head of the JP Morgan equity. And like a year ago, he said he put a hundred percent of his 401k into international. That's been like the worst call <laughs> of the last year. So the international is like a weird religion. Like it's, yeah, I've been too afraid of international. I, I've never put it in there. And my philosophy was, you know what? The S&P 500, a lot of those companies are international. I get some exposure that way, but still through the security of America. That's, oh. I, I own zero international. I'm, yeah. Cause like, the crap you said about China will happen. Yeah, there, there's It'll a time happen. for it. And there, there's a time for it. And the time for it, uh, an analogy a portfolio manager used with me is like, if you have a million dollars to buy real estate in Spain, would you rather the dollar be worth half as much or twice as much? Because yeah. you'd rather be worth more because then you can buy more Spanish real estate. He said the same is true in the stock market. You know, so. Yeah. So I, I want to pivot here. We got like probably about 15 minutes from the podcast because I think we could, we could, I could chit chat with you guys for like five hours on this. So. Uh, if you don't mind, Zach, I'm going to pull some very rough numbers because, you know, part of us getting to know each other and saying how we work. You put your properties in a property llama. I did. You own a handful. And, of and I have to say, I did that while I was, uh, wrapping up the conversation with you from like a month ago when we entered. So great. If, if anything's in for, in wrong, I'm going to call it out. So we're not looking at wrong numbers. No, that's fine. Cause I just want to say, because like I, I going back like 20 minutes, you talked about, you know, Hey, real estate expect, you know, a 20% ish return. I agree. You know, I want my real estate to outperform the stocks. If I can, if I can't outperform the stock market, I'm like, why am I taking the risk of active management, tenants, toilets, liability? Why? If I'm taking that extra risk, mm-hmm. I want to get extra return. So you, um, I think this is the place in the Highlands. Um, you know, so it's the place you bought, what, a number of years ago, probably about seven years ago, it looks like. No, that, that's the one down the street. Down the street. Okay. Yeah, that's a rental. Single family okay, so rental. down the street here yep. from the Locust office. Thanks for not saying the address. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, 
it's not my first rodeo. This is a podcast number 460, whatever. <laughs> here's my point, though. You got, you know, an LTV around 30%. So all our listeners know, low LTV. You have a low cap rate, sub 4%. What's my cap rate? 3.8%. Okay. Um, I rule of thumb is 4%. You have return equity of 9%. And so that calculation is like the cash flow, appreciation, straight line depreciation benefits, plus debt pay down, numerator divided by equity in the property. I'm going to totally throw this question back at you. You had 9% return equity mm-hmm. below the 20% threshold you said. Shameful. Yeah. What, what, how do you, and this is very common. Like this is the common, like I'm using air quotes, <laughs> great problem Denver landlords have is they bought these properties, just mass appreciation is a great problem. Mm-hmm. So as we were talking about earlier, you know, Hey, you like the payoff prop because they, they are strong income producing, but they're overall like low returns. How do you take that 9% ish return stock? Let's say it's stock market returns, essentially historical. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what can I ask you a cool question? What yeah. do you have? What do you have for the Denver uh, real estate appreciation percentage? Uh, or, like forecasted? Forecast in here, three uh, percent for next year. Okay. That's so, cool. and I, I think next year Denver will be between you know negative two to positive three or something like that. Mm-hmm. Historically, we're at five six percent. So pretty common on there. So this is a snapshot of like one year worth of all those numbers divided over there. So. This just jump down these are talking. I'm curious, like you, you hear that. Mm-hmm. How do you digest that? I think I should sell that property and buy an index fund because my index fund will pay me 12%. No, the way I, no but that, I know <laughs> from a spreadsheet, yes. Yeah. No, the way I think about it is like, uh, in my mind is it goes back to the, the personal side of personal financial planning, which is it just seems like people with paid off real estate and great cash flow, just their lives come together real nice. And then you can, like we were talking about with uh, cash flowing properties that you could use, um, Cash flow is to buy subsequent properties, so it's almost. But but the the hypocrisy is apparent, which is if you could actually actively go get your twenty percent, it's obviously superior to a nine percent. Yeah. Yeah. So the math the math the math resonates, but the behavioral uh, feelings resonate as well. But that's the fascinating thing about when you get into like wealth advisory like this. So this is why I just wanted to point out because you can understand the multi dimensional aspect of it. And also one one thing that I'll point out about this property too. This is like um, I think how a lot of people get into rental properties is they buy a house, live there, and then move out, yep. um, which is what this particular property is. So there's not the added like additional work of buying and vetting and selling, yeah. um, which frankly, I don't want to do. But you said you're also within that like two out of the five-year capital gains exclusion rule, yes. right? Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, so like with, with that aspect in there, that you have no really, no capital gains tax burden, mm-hmm. no need for a 1031 exchange, mm-hmm. uh, which are tough right now in the marketplace. Um, yeah, I paid uh, 375 for it. What do you have it at? 700? About 700. So, I mean, about doubled. Yeah. Probably worth a little less, honestly. But yeah. we'll see. Maybe not in April. Well, I mean, we'll see. I mean, so, that so, is spring selling season. Yeah. So, I know you said your tenants out in April. If you want to sell like that, that's the time to plan on selling because that's yeah. when you historically should. We'll know, you know, starting next month, how strong the market is. Yeah. But like, that's prime time to sell. So, if I if I can ask you, I, I told you I only listened to one of your podcasts. So, I'm not as up on these as, as you obviously are. But so, like, if you, if you would recommend, hey, Zach, we can go get. Well, actually, let me just ask you. I'll be, I'll be, I'll talk as if I was your client. If I were to sell this property and come away with like five hundred thousand bucks tax free, um, would would what would you think I could get in this market as far as a conservatively leveraged cap rate, um, or total return? However, you guys think about it. Yeah. So the way I would look at that is I always come down and say, hey, let's look for hey, you know, start with the goals. What do you want to do? Same stuff because that's that's what matters. Real estate is all just vehicle get you from point A to point B. Um, 
And so I'd, you know, stay with the goals and knowing that you want to be more, I'll say more hands-off passive. I don't mean completely passive, but you're going to spend 15 hours a week doing stuff on rentals or hunting and searching. I would say, hey, the best opportunity here is you need to move this equity. Okay. Um, and knowing that you've, you're in that capital gains exclusion, I would say sell that because you are getting about the best, one of the best gifts in the world that, you know, Uncle Sam gives us. You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, cap gains free and tax. One, so take that. Can I, can I offer it? But check the CPA, of course, we get that disclaimer. No, no, that's fine. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Actually. Uh, I'm gonna delete the podcast right before that disclaimer. And that, no, but yeah, <laughs> part of my mindset is you can always 1031 too. Is yeah. that is that a flippant dismissal of free tax money? Because my what I've seen a lot of my clients personally do, they buy real estate, they hold it, they never pay their tax on it, and then they give it to their kids at the step up and cost basis. Yeah, so that was my mindset. It's like I'll probably sell this someday, but I'll just 1031 into the next property. Um, yeah. I I would say I mean based on like because it sounds like you could sell this before you you hit that five year window. Yeah, five year window is not till next January. Okay, so, so I have you, nine months. Or so 12. you got time. So, so with that mindset, I, I would lean more towards selling it now yeah. and take the capital gains free because you now you get that money, you get top dollar. Free it's clear. free. You can do what you want with it. Yeah. Um, and that we don't have to deal with the ten thirty one because ten thirty one's the last ten years have been phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, sell trade up. Now with interest rates doubling, you go in there and buy a rental at seven percent. It's you still make greater wealth creation. But cash flow is a lot tough. You're putting down probably 35, 40% of more of a turnkey property, hmm. um, at least here in, in Denver Metro. Um, so I would lean towards, hey, this property is already kind of like underperforming our rule of thumb benchmarks, below 4% cap, below 50% LTV, below 10% return equity. Um, that's my indication like, hey, those three hit those numbers, sell it and move something else. Now, if you don't have the 1031 or don't have the capital gains exclusion, look at 1031 exchange. Um, look at the scenario though of just not doing 1031 exchanges to understand that. But if you can walk away with a huge amount without paying capital gains, I would take the money off the table. And that gives you the ability to redeploy it back into other real estate in the future, um, into an index fund, um, back in the business for growth or, or whatever. I would sell this and take the money and then figure out how you want to reinvest it. And then you can go across any asset. What, what do y'all think about um, mortgage rates? N- knowing that none of us can predict mortgage rates. Is there a... Oh, I can predict pretty confidently what they'll do. Oh, tell me. I, I feel strongly in 2023, they will change. Good. And come down. Oh. So are you in the camp of like, hey, buy, and then you can refinance down the road? Yeah. Oh. I mean, I'm of that. Like, you still have to like, you have to like, you know, weigh the pros and cons. Like, hey, I get the rate today. And if I'm happy with this fixed rate, and we have a lot of investors too who have a bunch of like low fixed rate debt that are now doing variable debt. Because like, hey, I got just low interest rate risk. I'll do some variable on there. With the idea of, hey, next year or two, uh, refi the variable to long-term debt, potentially. Can I tell you what I really think? What my heart wants to do? Yes. Can we have some honesty on the podcast? Is that acceptable? Absolutely. What my heart wants to do, (laughs) which I know is not what the spreadsheet wants to do. My heart wants to sell the house, get half a million, and then go buy two quarter million dollar properties, maybe in Pueblo or Colorado Springs or wherever. My quarter million dollars buys me like a paid for land or paid for house and then just just bathe in that sweet cash flow. That's what that's what the, that's what my heart tells me. Okay. Thank you for being so open Thank and you. intimate in this sharing circle. <laughs> you know, it's the, the the tequila in the air and the the wood paneling <laughs> smells and it's so nice in here. Wow. Well, I'm glad your heart wants to do that. <laughs> and I, I get that. And this is the, the art and science. Uh-huh. But kind of knowing, you know, I think we're around similar ages, similar demographics, similar goals. Um, 
this would be the equivalent of you saying, you know what? I want you to move all your money from a growth fund to a straight income fund. Like a if bond you, fund. If you yeah. buy, yeah, if you buy, if you buy two properties in Pueblo, you're buying um, I'm trying to, you know, basically an income fund or bond fund cash. You're gonna be the same thing. You're gonna be making it eight, nine, ten, eleven percent return on your money. So your your return won't change very much. Hmm. Yeah. So I'd say from that perspective, probably don't sell because you know, real estate has high transaction costs. Yeah. Now you get the money capital gains free, but like the, the rules of thumb here is you gotta buy with leverage and buy a better performing cap rate property. Pueblo will be a five or six, five, six percent cap rate. So you're going on there, but buying cash, um, that'll come back to your goals. I would, I would really lean away from that. Even if you buy a 50% LTV, get some leverage in there. Yeah. But buying cash is gonna be very much a, a lateral move, I would say. What, what do y'all think about? Is there a point where you recommend like multifamily instead of single family? Or are you guys kind of playing the single family? Oh, space no, we we play in the multifamily. It it just depends. I mean, um, a lot of people go to multifamily because, oh, economies of scale. You can get yeah. that, but not until you're talking like 30, 40, 50. And it's like a fourplex. Mm. You have some economies of scale, but it, it's it's so like small. That's nothing related to like, say, I'm going to change my business plan for this, in my opinion. Um, so the reason a lot of times people go to multifamily situations, especially is depends on a couple of things. It's like, um, is the returns they're giving. You know, a lot of times multifamilies give a better return than a single family because those are rental products, not owner-occupied products. The other thing too, is if you're doing 1031, you're like, hey, I want to be an easy investor. And you walk with, say, $500,000 easy math. Hey, $500,000 down on a $1.3 million fourplex or, you know, whatever multifamily is. It's one transaction, it's one simplicity. And a lot of times you get higher quality property management in the multifamily space okay. than single family space. Again, small multifamily, you know, it's kind of that transition area. So a lot of people lean towards that for uh, simplicity of exchange. You know, if you're in exchange, one transaction is better than three transactions. Um, and also just kind of staying along the lines of, hey, scaling up. So we have a lot of people in this similar profile, bought a house, equity is doubled, so not half of that. A lot of them are looking at multifamily trade up on. Some are taking their money and doing other investments with it, stocks or paying off other debt or going to triple net or going to Atlanta. But the big thing is, hey, this is a poor use of your equity, as I would say. You're making 9%. Yeah. Find something better with it first. Like, hey, where do you want to put it and figure out what that makes sense for? Yeah. If it's in Denver, awesome. Here's the market. You go out there, buy multifamily, 5 to 6% cap rate. I would figure a 35% down payment. And you go out there and buy a, you know, a fourplex. What do you recommend for like, let, let's say I keep building my portfolio out in like for this, this property, for example, I, I don't know the exact numbers I should, like the mortgage is 2,400 a month and the rent income is like 3,000 a month. So I've got like moderate cash. flow. So I'm on a 15 year mortgage. I don't know if that's represented in there. Um, what do you, do you recommend people? I have my, oh, I, I hate 15 planning. year mortgages, by the way. I know. I, I regret it. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I, I used to be on, uh, well, anyway, it doesn't matter. I used to be more hardcore about the Dave Ramsey thing. And that's why I bought the 15 year mortgage. Like anyway, but yep. uh, what do you guys, I have my answer when my clients ask me this, but I want to hear your answer as a real estate guy first, financial guy second. What do you recommend for cash reserves? So if I'm positive, let's say 500 months. Bucks, okay. So if I just had a couple grand in there, knowing that my guy is paying on time and well, six months of everything, six months of mortgage payments. Oh, so like 18,000. Yeah. So that would, say. so my rule of thumb is six months or 10 grand, whatever is greater should be the minimum. Okay. So you just keep in that account. Yeah. I mean, that, different people, have different philosophies. I kind of just kind of keep it 
cash and checking. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm pretty boring. Hey, cool. I'm losing to inflation and interest. I don't care. That money to me is just like operational insurance money. It's to make sure that I can make money in 30 years, not lose my place in three months. I look at that that way. Uh, but talking to a lot of people, I'm looking at the meltdowns from 2008, um, six months kind of was like the maximum time window on average where, hey, if you need to go in there and you know, fix a place and sell it or reposition a tenant or whatever. That gives you enough time to like go out there and make a, a smart move um, on the property. Um, so it, to me, it's six months plus. And I tell people, well, if you don't have that, you know, I'd, you should not buy a property right now. Unless you're very high risk and you're comfortable with that, but as a rule of thumb, minus six months. Six months or 10 grand, whichever is greater. Because if you know you got a place with a small mortgage, like cool, well, keep more than 3,000 in account. Yeah. But yeah, six months. I appreciate that. No, I was just mm. curious to get a sampling from the rest of the rest of the industry. Because that's the big difference here between real estate and stocks is like my Vanguard account has never required me to put more money into it. My <laughs> that's rental right. properties <laughs> that's right. have required me to put more, I, more I just, money into it. I had a dishwasher <laughs> I, I had a dishwasher go in November and uh, I can't believe how much a dishwasher costs now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, especially when the dishwasher floods. Yeah, I did. It flooded to the basement. Yeah. Well then it gets really <laughs> expensive. Um yeah, so that's is um yeah, so I mean that's yeah, I would I would sell it. You can prime time the market in the spring and put the money somewhere else. Um, back in active rental right now, um, not not I would say especially with your your inclination in the stocks and real estate and looking at what Denver real estate will do for a bit. I would sell it and move it either towards like a stock investment because you know that very well and the return should be similar or greater, mm-hmm. um, or look at some type of like bigger passive real estate investment because those are giving good returns right now, again, with the more of the passive, easy button side. Yeah. You know, it just made me think of something that is, it's funny. It's, it kind of goes back to the, like, do you get wealthy? Like, like taking other people's experience on how they get wealthy. There's this really awesome stat. And I wish I remembered it. You might remember it from one of the podcasts that we did <laughs> four years ago, but the average business owner who retires with over a million dollars, like something like nine out of 10 times, that million dollars came from buying their building and just simply selling it when they retired. So it's mm-hmm. not like the plumbing company that they sold for millions. It's just the real estate they held on to for 30 years that sold for millions. I mean, it, it speaks to the power of just like um, just real estate over long periods of time. And if, you know, using your plan, if you can actually do better than that, because you're you know getting the return on equity that you need, yeah. as long as you own the real estate, you don't miss out on these huge years or decades yeah. like we just got. And I mean, from a market standpoint, you know, a lot of people say, I don't want to sell because we're getting this major appreciation wave. I get it. But that appreciation party is over. We're not going to have some crash. It'll be flat for a year or so or whatever, a year or two, probably. But that appreciation party is over. For how long do you think? Um, I mean, it's going to be, you know, this is where like real estate is so interesting compared to stocks and bonds because we're so hyper local and different markets are experiencing, you know, different takes like. A lot of properties in Denver still get multiple bids on. Yeah. They're in high lo- in desirable locations and they, they are marketed and priced appropriately. Other areas, hey, they, they're hitting some, you know, they're they're hitting some speed bumps and values are going down. Uh, I would say probably for one to two years, I would expect real estate appreciation to be relatively flat, like from that, you know, maybe negative one or two this year to like some modest gains this year with really knowing, hey, but what may happen is if interest rates drop a little bit, come quarter two in that like 5% range, and we've always pent up demand low inventory, there's a very real good chance we'd be back into like a, a an extreme seller situation with multiple properties on there that can continue to drive appreciation. But my expectation is this year and uh, this year and next year to be relatively flat. 
and then it'll kind of return back to more historical norms. Do you think, um, I'll tell you my opinion, then ask your opinion. So it seems to me that as a financial advisor, my clients are in, are exhibiting better investor behavior than they did 12, 13 years ago. And I don't know if that's just the market I'm playing in or the fact that, you know, we've only had this modern economy for a hundred years. Like we haven't always had like this, like everyone buys a single family home real estate economy. It's relatively no. new. But the thing that has been impressed upon me with the real estate is I know so many people like me or like Austin who truly look at the market dropping and say, this is an opportunity. And I don't know that it was like that 15 years ago. Do, do you think people are changing or do you think we're just playing in, in, in a different part of the field that has always kind of felt um, that I know mean, that's such a good question and hard answer. I mean, because, you know, that, you know, I, I think it's a couple of things. I think, a, I think there's a lot more education out there for people to have that type of like education out there. I think the other side of it is that since I'm of that mindset now in that space, I'm more aware and I, and I attract more people at that same point of view. So I think it's part of the, 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 the population changing, but more like just my own, more me changing. And along the lines, like, hey, you know, the, what your net worth is the average, some of the six people that you hang out with net worth, that type of philosophy. I think a lot of it comes down from the market change, but also just like the personal growth and you tend to be with those people and see those opportunities as well. How much of that has to do with experience though, Zach? You mentioned you started out in 2008. And so a lot of the investors who are working with experience 2008, experience 2009, they've been through these drawbacks to where now in 2022, how much of that plays a part in that they see it more as an opportunity now because they've withstood the volatility in the past? Yeah, no, I don't know. I, I just think of like uh, like Great Depression parents, you know, if you're like people who grew up in the Great Depression they never got over it and they would still like you know, save the wrapping paper or whatever, you know, save the tube of, of, you know, from the toilet paper and do something with it. And I wonder how much like our current environment is like, oh, we, we got through 2008, it was fine. And we got through COVID and it was fine. So I'm sure this will be fine. Yeah. You know, I wonder if that is the answer is like this generation now has the experience, but maybe the, the 20 year olds won't, you know, maybe the 20 year olds have a different perspective on it. So I don't know. It's a I'm just curious if as a real estate guy, you saw any different behaviors. It's hard because I wasn't in the real estate 12 years ago. Yeah. So I, I don't have that experience. Um, but yeah, just sell everything, put in crypto and best move for 2023, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I, I've been telling people. If you want to buy the best performing, because <laughs> <laughs> you, you want to go up. No, if you want to buy the best performing asset class of the ten that past 10 years, it's a cryptocurrency that everyone knows the name of, which I'm not going to say, but you can't just look to the past. I mean, you have to yeah. look to the future. Yeah. And, but but if you just look on historical returns, it's a cryptocurrency still, even with the huge drawdown in 20, whatever, 2022. So I just look at the time, guys. Uh, we got to wrap up or we've been jamming for like close to an hour. This has been oh, awesome. fun. Yeah. Um, we could debate this several time, but I, I thoroughly enjoy this because we've been talking real estate stocks, you know, and this each bring, we have similar goals and outcomes, but just different like paths to get there and interesting insights. So we'll do more of these. We got one more coming up uh, February 14th. Uh, that goes in more of a structured way. Look at your global portfolio. Details will be on there. So check it out. But if you guys have any questions for me, reach out. But most important, if you guys have any questions for Austin, Zach, their contact details will be in the show notes or go to denverwealthmanagement.com. Get in touch with them. Obviously, you know a lot about their philosophy and uh, their expertise in that field. So guys, thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having us. This on. is always fun. It. 